You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Before we get started, why don't you tell someone beside you the title of my sermon this morning? Am I a Christian? Part two. Am I a Christian? Part two. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we're in the middle of our Gospel of John series where we've been walking through the Gospel of John and really discovering for ourselves why Christ is a sufficient Savior, why He is, a, the, he, he is the, 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 the Son of God, His divinity, and, and really why, uh, why we should believe in Him. Remember John's purpose for this entire book that he, he writes is for the sake of us believing that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. That's his thesis statement. And so now we are, we are caught up in the middle of John chapter 6. Last week, we started looking at this discourse, this conversation that Jesus has begun with this, this people that has sought after him. If you remember, the beginning parts of chapter 6 is filled with two miracles, two big miracles in Jesus' earthly ministry. The first being the feeding of the five thousand, right? Jesus took uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, and he, and he used it and multiplied and created something out of nothing to feed a multitude of people. And secondly, right after that, we see that it, the, the disciples, they get caught up in a storm, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water and meets them there, displaying, again, his, his divinity, his, his power over creation. Now, those two miracles are very much similar, as we mentioned last week, both of them displaying the divinity of Christ in some way or another. But yet, what we see towards the end of chapter 6, remember, this is all one continuous narrative that's being told by John, at the end of chapter 6 is that we see this, this crowd, the same crowd that Jesus fed, go off and, and depart from Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples stay. Now, I find that very interesting, again, because these are very two similar miracles. They had similar experiences, these two groups, right? Uh, they were both personal in some way. Remember how we said how John, he, 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 he talks about the feeding of the 5,000 in a way as if Jesus was the one personally distributing the food to these people. And yet, at, and at the same time, the, when he walks on the water, that's a personal display of his glory uh, to the disciples. Yet, though these miracles are similar, and though these two groups of people experience the same thing. One group leaves, the other stays. Why? Why is the question that we're trying to answer as we break or unpack this, this chapter? And the sort of the theological truth and theological narrative that is weaved throughout this entire chapter is that unless God himself draws someone to himself, they will not truly believe. They cannot truly believe. Right, John chapter 6, verse 44, we'll look at this verse a little uh, in a couple of weeks here. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me, that's Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Unless it is the Holy Spirit working in an individual's heart, in a sinner's heart, to regenerate their heart, to remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, unless it's the Holy Spirit drawing that individual to Christ, to God, listen, we're, we're, we're nothing more than just sinners, right? We're, 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 we can be attracted to, the, to the, the things of the church. We can be attracted to how good Jesus is and how wonderful he is. But at the end of the day, we will not truly come to faith. 
We can take part of the, the, the ministries. We can come to church. We can, you can attend every service and sing every song. But unless Christ is the one, unless the Holy Spirit is the one to work in us, a regenerative work in our hearts, at the end of the day, we will abandon Christ. And the evidence of that is chapter 6, right? These people, again, they saw these miracles. They, Jesus personally performed this miracle in front of them, yet at the end of the day, they still abandoned him. They still abandon him. And so this, this, as we've been going through last week, as we started last week, we've been discussing the characteristics of false Christians. Those who seemingly uh, portray themselves, outwardly at least, to be believers, but in reality, are, their hearts are quite far from God. And at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they will abandon their faith. Remember, last week we started talking about this and some of these characteristics. These people were not drawn to the Father. They were drawn by their flesh and to see what they could get out of it. Right? Last week we talked about some of these characteristics. False Christians chase after a spectacle. Some of these people just heard that, hey, you know, Jesus is performing this great miracle. He's giving out free food. Like, hey, sign me up, right? Where do we find this guy? And so they go after Jesus looking for some sort of spectacle, looking for some sort of performance. And oftentimes, people come to church for that as well, right? Uh, they, they come for that sort of entertainment. They come for that sort of wonder to, to break them out of the, uh, the, the mundane lifestyle that they might be living, in addition to that, we saw last week how these people, these false Christians, also crave for the physical. They were after the, that physical food. They were after that material thing that, that Christ could give to them, right? They were looking for something to satisfy their, their physical cravings, their material cravings. And again, we see people coming to church, and even churches that are about all that, all about the health, wealth, prosperity, and everything that you can get from God, right? They treat God like a cosmic vending machine. Again, it's the same people who end up abandoning God at the end of the day. And finally, we, we talked about how these same people came after Christ. They were looking for Christ because they coveted their potential. Like they coveted this idea. They asked Jesus, okay, you know, you did this power. How can we do that? Right? And then, and then there's, there, there's, in a similar way, there's people who come to church looking for the same thing, looking to be told that they're good, looking to be told that they have the potential, that they have the strength in them, that they can do it, right? There's a lot of motivational churches out there and, and puffing up people, even though, even though what should be happening is that our dependence in Christ should be growing rather than our dependence on ourselves. And so there's these false Christians, these, these, these Christians who, who, who believe that, hey, it's all about me, right? It's all about what I can get. It's all about, you know, the, the performance and me being entertained. And those are the same people that we see in our passage. Now, the reverse of that, as we started talking about last week as well, the signs of a true believer doesn't need any of that. A sign of a true believer says, hey, you know what? Even in the the the, the sort of the default, the mundane aspects of my life where I'm just going about my day, taking care of the kids, grocery shopping, all of these things, I can still worship God in that. I don't need some big spectacle. I don't need some big performance. I can still follow God intimately even in that. True believers even say, hey, you know what? Even if I, if, if I am languishing physically, if I, if I don't have the material goods, guess what? I will still praise the Lord. True believers say, you know what, I, I, I cannot, I, I, I have nothing in myself. I have nothing good in myself to depend on, to stand upon. I need Jesus. 
In my weaknesses, he's my strength. That's what a true believer is. That's what true faith looks like. And so this morning, we're going to continue this uh, unpacking the, this discourse that Jesus is having with this crowd, this people that came after him. And we're going to continue seeing more characteristics of false Christians. And as, our, our, as we mentioned last week, our hope this morning is that we continue in examining ourselves, continue examining our hearts and asking that simple question of, am I a Christian? Have I come to church this morning with the right heart before God? Or am I just, am I just uh, you know, here for something? Am I trying to get something from God? Am I trying to get, again, that physical thing, that entertainment kind of thing, the, to, to be told that I have the potential to do something? And, uh, and, and then we're going to list out some more characteristics this morning. And so while you're sitting there this morning listening to my voice, examine your heart. Cry out to God. Right, that's the, and, and and you know what? I, I, I maybe you're sitting there and thinking like, why is Pastor Ian like getting me to question my faith? Listen, I'm not getting to question your faith. Right, the Bible says that we are to to wrestle with our faith in fear and trembling, to be constantly under the, the pressures of the of a holy God, to just to check our hearts and see, hey, hey, you know what? If there's anything, any sinful thing in my heart, God, point it out, convict me, so that I might walk in the right path. So that I might follow you truly and faithfully. So again, my hope for you this morning, my call for you this morning is that, listen, check your heart, examine it. And, and sure, maybe you are a true believer this morning, but listen, right? Oftentimes we are tempted just, we are tempted to behave and think just the same as these false Christians that we'll be talking about this morning. Oftentimes our circumstances, the things that we deal with in life, our trials, the stresses in life will will invoke our flesh to desire after the, the, the spectacle, the performance, the, the feelings, the, all of these things that these false Christians were going after initially. And so my hope this morning is that as those temptations come, as conviction comes, that you would stand your ground, that you would come to a maturity in the faith and think, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter if I don't have these things. If I, it doesn't matter if I don't see these things. I will stand my ground and be faithful to God. So without further ado, let's, let's jump into our passage this morning and get into the next set of characteristics that we see in, in these so-called Christians, right? Uh, everyone say, jump for me. Amen. So let's break this down. Let's go to verse 28. It says in verse 28, Then they said to him, this is where we left off last week, Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Remember, Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do any miracle for you. I'm not going to you know, multiply any more bread for you. And so now the people are saying, hey, you know, teach us how to do it then. And what can we do then to do these miracles, these works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is, this, is the, this is the only miracle that you should be worrying about. This is the only thing that you should be pursuing, the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart so that you might believe. That is the greatest miracle that a believer could experience, that a sinner could experience, right? And the greatest sign is that if you are caused to believe in your heart, because again, we talk about this idea of total depravity, that alone, that a sinner cannot choose God, cannot go after God. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to pursue God. And so, so Jesus is saying that is the greatest miracle that you can experience, the, the miracle of regeneration. But look what happens next. The people do not get it. Verse 30, they do not understand so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now this is interesting, right? It's like, 
Well, hold on, hold on. Jesus is saying, you got to believe, right? And now these people are saying, all right, okay, okay. So then perform a miracle, perform a sign so that we can believe. These are the same people that Jesus just fed, right? These are the same people who Jesus just multiplied the, the, the loaves and the fishes for, and now they're still asking for a sign just so that they can believe. See, what's interesting, and here's the first characteristic that we'll look at this morning, is that false Christians demand a miracle. False Christians demand a miracle. They, they, these people are standing from a place of pride. They're thinking, you know what? God owes me a miracle so that I would believe in him, right? God will, I will not believe in God unless he performs for me, unless he does something for me, unless he shows up right now. This is the, the mentality of these people. And, and, and that's proven even, even in the next verse, right? Verse 31 says, our fathers, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're saying this is what happened in the past, right? This is how, how we were fed in the past. This is the miracle that we saw in the past. This is what, the, what my, our fathers experienced in the wilderness, you got to beat that. you got to outdo that so that we can believe. This is the mentality to the heart of these people. Remember how, how a couple of weeks ago, ago we, we talked about how we shouldn't be taking narrative, the, the narrative parts of the Bible, and making it normative, right? Applying it to our daily lives. This is exactly an example of that. These people were looking back to the past and saying, hey, you know what? I'm not going to believe unless I see something similar to that. Unfortunately, many Christians go to church with the same kind of unbelief. Many church uh, or, or so-called uh, churchgoers, right, they, they, they come with that same sentiment, coming to see something to prove to themselves that God is real or that to prove or, or to, to fix their, their unbelief. Whether it's, it's some sort of miracle that they're looking from the church or whether it's they're, they're looking for some supernatural experience Similar to how the, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the last week we, we talked about how the, there's a group of people who look for the performance, the spectacle, all of that stuff, the, the, how they can be entertained. This is more of a spiritual nature, right? I want to be touched spiritually. I want to I I I experience God, and I will not believe until this happens. Well, what does Jesus say about those who seek for signs and miracles? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, he says this. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he says the same thing in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Like these groups of, in both instances, some Pharisees and some scribes went to Jesus, approaching him and asking for the same thing that these people in our passage in John was asking for. Show us a sign. Show us a miracle so that we might believe. And Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's he talking about? That? That, he's talking about the resurrection, right? The same way that the prophet Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so would the Son of Man himself, Jesus Christ, would be in the grave and be resurrected after three days and three nights. That's the only sign. And Jesus' point there is that, listen, this is the greatest miracle that you can ever encounter, ever experience, ever hear about or know about. 
The Son of God being slain, put to death, buried for three days and three nights, and rising from the dead. If you do not believe that, how would you believe something else? How could you believe something else? And remember, this is coming from a generation, these people in our passage, they're, they're arguing from the fact that, hey, this is, this is, you know, our fathers went through the wilderness and they were fed manna from heaven. Like, so what? So what? The Israelites is a great example of how signs do not convert people, right? Because if you remember the story of the Israelites, they went, they experienced, through the, they experienced the plagues in Egypt. They went through the Red Sea crossing. They went through the wilderness, experienced the manna from heaven, they, the, the healing from the, the poisonous snakes. They, they followed a pillar of fire by night, a, cloud of, uh, a pillar of cloud by day. They experienced all the miracles and wonders of God. They even saw God touch down on the mountain of Sinai. All of that. And at the end of the day, only two people came to the promised land. The Israelites is a great example of how miracles and signs and wonders do not convert people. It is, only the, it is only the work of God that regenerates the heart, that opens the heart of flesh, or, or takes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh so that one can truly believe in him. Did you notice, by the way, in those Matthew passages, Jesus says, hey, uh, you know, you're an adulterous generation. You're an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Did you notice that? You know, Jesus wasn't just insulting them, right? He wasn't just saying, hey, you're, you're adulterers, right? For looking for a sign. No, he's very specific. Why, why does he call them adulterers? Well, I think there's a connection there in regards to how people can often lust after God and his wonders and his signs and miracles, his power versus love God. Lust says, hey, God, prove, it, prove yourself to me. Show yourself to me. Then I will believe. Then I will follow you. It's that mentality of, okay, what can I get first? Right? Tell me what I can get first. Show me what I can get, you know, what I'm getting into. And then I will believe. Then I will follow. That's what lusting after God is. Versus loving God says, God, your grace is enough. Your mercy is enough. You know, you've taken me, a sinner, undeserving of any of this stuff, and yet you have still called me, still called me your own, still adopted me. And then from that, you're pursuing and believing God. That is love. Now, in addition to that, I love what God says to his people, the same people that we just talked about, the Israelites, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is great. When he, in regards to the, this sort of same heart, right? The sort of same, whether you're lusting or loving God. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 to 3, this is what God says to his, to his people. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. Talking about miracles, right? And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer or dreams. God is saying, listen, if someone comes up to you and does perform these miracles and you see these signs and wonders and they come to fruition, they they actually happen, they actually take place, still don't believe them. Still don't pursue them. Still don't go after them. And then look what it says right after that. He says, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. That's what it is. There's a test in this. When, when, when these things happen, there's often a test. 
Does our heart go to that side of, of lusting after God, of wanting to be able to do that same miracle, same power, to have that same power, to be able to see more of that spectacle? Or do we, from a heart of love, come to God and say, Lord, does not matter. I'm loving you still. I'm pursuing you still. My faith is in you still. You know, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, the, similar to the characteristics that we looked at last week. The, these, these characteristics that we're looking at this week, and especially this one here about these signs and miracles, are often perpetuated by false churches, right? There are many false churches who are trying to, who, who, who try to pump out these signs and miracles and wonders to attract people and to say, this is the gospel, this is the power of God that you can experience yourself. But unfortunately, false churches produce false Christians. Or at the, at the very most, you know, very shallow Christians. Christians that depend on these things to believe. You know, there's, there's, even when it comes to sharing the gospel, these so-called evangelists who say that you need to, you know, when, when you're preaching the gospel, that needs to be preached with power, Right? meaning that you need to perform some sort of sign as well while you go and share the gospel so that people would believe. No, that's not what the Bible says. You don't need some signs or miracles or wonders just to, just to evangelize and preach the gospel. They're taking that idea, by the way, that concept from a very out-of-context out of context passage, right? There's a passage in Matthew that says uh, uh, that when Jesus sent out the twelve, he said to them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, right? And so they're taking that concept and saying, okay, that means that whenever we go share the gospel, we've got to heal someone, you know, heal their leg, make them feel better, put our hands on them or something, and then they'll believe. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what necessitates real and genuine faith according to Scripture. Remember the Samaritan woman? Back in John chapter 4, we read about that, we studied that. What miracle did Jesus perform in front of her? And yet she believed, and then her entire village believed afterwards. No miracle, no sign performed. Remember, uh, maybe you've heard of the story in Matthew chapter 15, the Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman who came to, to Jesus asking for her daughter to be healed, who was sick. And Jesus at first says, you know, the, he says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 26, he says, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And then she says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the, their master's table. This is Jesus' answer to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. That example shows that the faith comes first. That Jesus didn't need to perform a miracle first for her to have some great faith. God was already working in her heart. God was already changing her heart and drawing her towards him. False Christians demand a miracle. And some application here for us, right? Listen, don't demand a sign. Don't demand a miracle. Don't, don't, um, and I'm very, I'm using that word very particularly. Don't demand a sign as if God owes you one. You know, we live by faith, not by sight. Do not test the Lord your God. Oftentimes, I think we have this imagery that we're like Gideon from the Old Testament, right? Taking narrative into normative, right? Like Gideon, and we're putting out that fleece, and we're asking out, okay, God, if, if you're actually going to do this, then make this thing happen. And then, you know, how the story goes, the next day, Gideon does it again. God, if you're going to do this now, make this other thing happen. Listen, 
That was a failure on Gideon's part. Why would you imitate that? That was a lack of faith in Gideon's part, a lack of of real sincere faith, a trust in God. That was an example of his unbelief. Why would you even desire to imitate that? God's faithfulness should be enough. God's faithfulness should be enough. Now, as a disclaimer, I want to be very open about this, right? That I'm not saying that God does not perform miracles today. Not at all. I've seen them, I've experienced them myself in my own life, my family's life, all this stuff. I'm not saying that God does not perform miracles today or that, he, or, or that we can't ask for one. I'm not saying that either. My point here is that we cannot demand for one. At the end of the day, whatever we ask for, whatever miracle we're asking for, whatever gift that we're asking for, anything from God, it always has to be under the premise of his will and not ours. Your will be done, not mine. But again, when it comes to sharing the gospel and when it comes to sharing the good news to people, God does not require us or he does not need to perform a miracle to cause someone to have faith. The only miracle that he demonstrates is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And the greatest sign that he has demonstrated to humanity is him rising from the grave. Let's go on to verse 31 to 33. Our passage says, and this is the people talking again here, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now this is funny because they're, they're implying something here, right? They're implying something here that Jesus immediately calls out in verse, 30, uh, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So these people are saying, yeah, you know, we got fed in the wilderness. They gave us, we were given bread to eat in the wilderness. And Jesus got to the truth. He knows where, where, where they're, they're sort of taking out of context. Their, their, their mind has been skewed with their, their false belief system. They're thinking that it was Moses who fed them. In reality, it was God. It was the Father who gave them the bread. That's what Jesus says here. That's what he's calling them out on. And then he goes on to say that it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Remember, he was talking about this earlier, right? He said back in verse 27, I believe, he said, right, do not work for the, the bread that, that doesn't last. Work for the one that endures your eternal life. And then he goes on to say in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, what's interesting here, and before we move on to the next point here, what's interesting is that these people's faith was solely situated on Moses. This was sort of the culture, the tradition, the, the, the mental uh, position that most of the Jews were back in Jesus' day. Again, the Pharisees had the law. They pushed. They were very legalistic about it. The Sadducees only stayed true to the first five books of the Bible, the, the books that Moses wrote. And so everything that revolved around, everything that in their, in their culture, in their traditions, in their religion, in their faith, revolved around Moses. And that's the second characteristic of a false Christian. False Christians depend on man. False Christians, their, 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 their hope, their faith their, their perspective or understanding of the word is solely dependent on a person, on a human being, on a man, and not God. You know, I, I think this is why in modern day churches, especially a lot of these popular, these big churches, right? People flock to personalities. People flock to preachers, right? 
People flock to the, 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 the popular preacher that everyone is talking about. Let's go to this so-and-so's church because, you know, he's, he's great and popular right now. They make them the center of their faith. And this is actually where pastor worship comes from, right? Where, where congregants, they elevate the pastor in a, to, to a higher degree, to an office that he should not be at. Probably where we get that idea of, you know, touch not the Lord's anointed. And why some people cannot say anything bad about their preacher or, or call them out on anything bad. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is that these preachers become idols. And then when, 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 when oftentimes these same very popular preachers stumble into sin and they get caught in a scandal, guess what? Everyone who's been putting their faith in them, they fall apart too. They go astray as well. They, they get disappointed. They get disillusioned by the, by the faith. By the way, this is, this is how cults are started, right? When people... When wolves in sheep's clothing come into the church acting as preachers and people go after them and instead of pointing these people to Christ, to God, they, point, they, they keep the attention to themselves. They keep the following. They perpetuate this idea that you know, they can't be questioned, they can't be criticized. And all they produce is false believers. A faith in the messenger rather than in the Messiah that's not real faith. You know, we read about this same uh, situation actually in the New Testament, right? In the, in the book of Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a similar situation in, in, in the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, he's talking to the, the church of Corinth here. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There there is this sense of pride in these Corinthian believers, right? Because of who they claim to be, their their apostle, who they claim to follow in in their faith. I I think it comes, it's really, I get tied close to their Jewish roots, their Jewish heritage in in the Jewish culture. The the rabbis were very popular. And depending on who your rabbi was, you'd you'd have some sort of standing, some sort of prowess in front of the the community. Like, this is who my rabbi was. My rabbi was Nicodemus. And therefore, guess what? I'm I'm a student of so-and-so. And I think that translated over to the Corinthian church. They were saying, hey, I'm, my teacher is Paul. No, no, my teacher is Apollos. Well, my teacher is Cephas. Well, my teacher is Jesus, right? They're like out trying to outdo each other here. But then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I love that. Paul is getting to the heart of it, Right? Again, it's just your pride. It's just your, your human nature that wants to cling on to something tangible and something physical. And so you choose a teacher that you can see on the stage to say, hey, that's where my faith is. That's where I'm standing. Very human in nature. And aren't, you mere, aren't you being merely human? Then he says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Paul is very quick to say, hey, listen, we're just servants, right? We're just servants that we're, who are pointing you to the real source of growth, the real source of salvation, God himself. 
It's, 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 it's a very straightforward point here, right? If our faith is in the messenger or the man, listen, we miss the point, right? Our, our faith is misplaced. And my job as your pastor is to get out of the way so that Jesus could take center stage, so that Jesus could be king over your life. If at any point, right, if at any point that your faith is dependent on me and me walking with you and me preaching to you and me discipling you and all of these things, although that is my responsibility as the under-shepherd of the Lord in this church, listen, if your faith falls apart when I leave, I, I haven't done a good job. I haven't done a good job. No pastor can save you. No pastor can save you. No pastor can maintain or sustain your faith. The best that we can do is feed you, present the word of God before you so that you yourself can partake of it, so that the Holy Spirit can move in you to be convicted and, 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 and apply it to your life. But at the end of the day, the author and perfecter of your faith is Jesus Christ. Again, the application there is don't put your faith in man. You'll be greatly disappointed. You'll be disillusioned when they stumble and they fall. Man is fallible. This is why one of the foundational truths that we adhere to this church in is sola scriptura, right? That scripture alone is the only infallible truth and the only infallible source that we can turn to for life and practice in this earth. Again, as, as we've been, we've always say in, in this church, right, whenever you hear something, whether it's from me or whether it's from an outside source or you read a book or whatever it is, always test it to Scripture. Be like the Berean Christians in Acts chapter 17, right, and who, 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 who tested everything, even what the Apostle Paul told them about the Word of God. They tested everything, everything examined Scripture to see that everything matched what Paul was teaching them. Scripture should be your standard, your source, your guidance into what is truth and to how you should practice your faith. So we're going to touch on this a little more in a moment, but false Christians depend on man. False Christians depend on man. Now, let's go back to verse 32 here. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Who is Jesus talking about? Himself. Very clear, very simple, right? You're hearing it like, okay, I think he's talking about himself. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who is he talking about there? Verse 33. Himself again, right? The bread, for the bread of God is he. It's a person that he's talking about. Then verse 34 is very curious. This is very interesting. Listen to this. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Did they understand what he just said? Did they get that, what he just said? Jesus very explicitly said, right, that the bread that comes from the Father is a he, it's a person, it's himself, right? He's about to reveal that he is the bread of life, all these things. But he's telling these people, guess what, right? And remember, right from verse 27, he says, right, don't pursue the, 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 the physical bread, pursue the one that endures to eternal life. He's saying these things, sort of hinting at them, trying to be very, uh, be, be very straightforward with them, that, hey, don't pursue a physical bread, pursue a spiritual one, pursue this person, this, this bread that is coming down from heaven, a person, and then yet they answer in verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. 
Like, you missed, were you listening at all, right? And that's why in verse, in the next verse, right, Jesus very explicitly, very bluntly tells them, I am the bread of life. Like, listen, hold on. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. These people didn't get it, obviously. But I think that's another characteristic of false Christians. False Christians disregard the message. False Christians disregard the message. It did not matter how many times Jesus repeated himself or trying to clarify to these people, they did not listen. In the same way, false Christians will come to church every week, hear the gospel every week, but no heart change will take place. They will not listen. Why is that? Well, for one, we know scripturally is that God has deafened the ears and blinded the eyes of those who, of sinners. There is that. But there's also a, it's also a result of their own sinfulness and their own flesh. And remember, we read in Romans that sinners repress or suppress the truth of God. It's not just that they can't listen or they deny it, but they suppress the truth of God. But as we've been reading in these examples, these, these characteristics that we've been looking at, they're still seeking God in their flesh. They're still looking for that performance. They're looking for that physical aspect, the material aspect. They're looking for their potential, their potential to be revealed. They're still demanding a miracle. And instead of the word, they're still looking to man. They're looking for something, for someone to give them something. And at the end of the day, they only want to hear what they want to hear. If you recall the, the passage in 2 Timothy where Paul says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Sound teaching meaning what is true, what is proven and true, doctrinally speaking. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. These people are the ones who come to church looking just to listen, to hear what, what they're what they want to hear, what would push them further into, into their passions or their flesh or their desires. This is the difference maker, right? This is, this is the difference between what, what happened with these, this crowd of people who pursued Jesus and the 12, the apostles who stayed with Jesus at the end. These, the, it's, it's one group heard the message, both group, groups heard the message, one group denied it, one group suppressed it, one group uh, turned, a, turned a deaf ear to it, while the other believed. And we know this because in John chapter 6, verse 66, the end of this passage, and at the end of this whole, whole discourse, this is what happens, right? Verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, the ones who remained, the ones who stayed, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a difference maker because the disciples came to believe in Christ, in his word, in the message, in the fact that Jesus was indeed the the bread of life. The one that God would send so that you would not hunger again, well, you would not thirst spiritually again. The disciples believed. They heard the message. 
They believed that Jesus was the only one that they could turn to. Remember, they experienced the same sort of miracle as these other people. They were on this boat, and I can imagine from the perspective of the disciples, they're on this boat, they're about to die in this storm and in the middle of the night, and here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus walking on the water, commanding the wind and the waves. And then after that, they hear this whole explanation about Jesus being the bread of life, and everything clicks for the disciples. The only way that we can survive, the only way that we can have life is in you. You have the words of life. So when we, when we focus on the miracles, when we focus on the man, when we miss out on the message, the reality is we're missing out on Christ. We're missing out on the gospel, the good news. That God being a holy and loving God and us being sinners undeserving of anything good from him, undeserving of any grace or mercy from him, he still sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf, to take the punishment of sin that we should have experienced on himself. And after that death, he he was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave. Why? All to confirm, all to confirm his, his claims of being the Son of God, all to, to assure us that we have an eternal hope in Him. If our focus is on the tangible, the miracles, the, 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 the person up on the stage, the performance, the, the, the things that we can get from God, the material things, we miss out on all that wealth, that wealth of, of joy, the, the, of truly tasting and see that the Lord is good. And He's demonstrated that through Jesus Christ. even as we, as we close from here, right? I think it's always interesting that false Christians are often seeking for these supernatural things and looking for, for signs and wonders just to believe. But the reality is the gospel is enough. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the power of God. If you want some, some sort of wonder from God to be displayed, some sort of his, his power to be displayed, it's the gospel. It's that story that we just talked about. You know, the overarching message that these false Christians have been saying from what we read last week and this week the, the sort of the theme that has been that has been going on and where their hearts has been at. The underlying message is that Jesus is not enough. We want to see a miracle. We 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 want we want uh, we want a tangible thing like what Moses did. We want some sort of spectacle. We want some sort of material thing. We want this. We want that from God before we believe. What they're saying is Jesus, you're not enough. And that's the same temptation that we experience every day, right? Whenever we go through stress, whenever we go through trials, whenever we go through hardships in this life, we may be true believers, we may have, be truly situated in, in, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that can often be our heart sometimes. That's where we can be tempted at times, to want something more than Christ in those circumstances, in those stresses of life. 
that temptation to think, okay, you know, I mean, we may not say it explicitly, we may not think, we might not say it out loud, right? But God, I need a little something more, right? I need a little something more for me to truly believe, to truly trust in you, to really walk in faith and obedience in my life. The reality is, all we're saying is Christ is not enough. What's, what's Jesus' answer to this, by the way? We'll look, at more, we'll look at this more next week, but Jesus answered to this and to these people who were saying this to him. This is what he says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ's claim, Christ's answer to that, that, that statement is that he is enough. Even when we don't think it, even when our hearts desire and long for something else, the reality is Christ is enough. Maybe, and maybe the reason why he's not enough for you is because he's not doing what you want him to do. He's not fulfilling your expectations of him, your demands of him. Well, listen, Christ did not come to earth to fulfill your demands. He came to earth to fulfill the demands of your sin, the punishment for your sin. And yet, even in the midst of that, he offers satisfaction. He offers a relationship with him. And that's an invitation for us this morning, whether we are believers or non-believers, whether we have this relationship with God or not, to find our satisfaction in him. To find satisfaction not in, in, in what we want, in what we want to see, in, in any of these material things, tangible things, Find that hope in him. Now, even if we don't get those things, that he'll be with us in the sorrow, he'll be with us in our trials, in our difficult circumstances, that he's our strength, but even more than that, he is our forgiveness, he's our reconciliation with the holy God. He is a tangible demonstration of God's love for us. He is the greatest wonder and miracle and sign that God performs to humanity so that we might truly believe in him and have hope. Jesus is enough. So I pray if, if, if your heart has, has turned to these other things, if your heart has reflected the heart of these, these unbelievers in our passage, I pray that you would repent and you would seek him out this morning and truly put your faith in him. Let's pray. Well, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us, that you show us mercy, that no matter however our hearts wander, no matter what our hearts long for, our flesh craves after, that you are still good, that you are still present, and you're still faithful, that you still receive us with open arms. So we ask God for mercy. We ask God for help in the areas where we have 
struggled with unbelief. We ask God where we have sought after other things to satisfy our deep needs and our deep longings in the flesh. And where we have declared that you're not enough when in reality you are. When in reality you are sufficient for these desires, these longings, when you are when in reality you, Jesus, are the answer to whatever plight, whatever struggle, whatever strife that we experience in this life. You are the only lasting and true enduring hope in this world and in the next. That in you alone can we find the words of life. So I pray for the heart, O Lord, that has strayed, that you'd bring it home. I pray, Father God, for the heart that has struggled with unbelief, that you would revive faith. But I pray, O Lord, for the heart that is still hardened, the heart that is still in the depths of sin, that Holy Spirit, that you would take this sacred moment and regenerate it, that, Lord, you would remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and cause the individual to be drawn to you, to have faith, to believe in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ, for hope, for assurance, Oh God, help us because you know that we are weak in our flesh, but in our weaknesses you have made us strong because your power is made all the more perfect, all the more revealed in our weaknesses. We trust and surrender, oh God, to you. Lord, have your will, have your way amongst us in Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.